Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. I'm Kate Woda. I'm delighted to share a panel discussion from the 2019 Immuno-Oncology 360 Conference, also known as IO360, on the topic of combining IO modalities in a cost-effective, patient-beneficial manner that unfolds in our lifetime. This session is led by Dr. Bob Stein, Senior R&D Advisor for Aginus. Dr. Stein is joined by Dr. Sean Bendel of IonPath, Dr. Jeffrey Bachman of Cello Health Bioconsulting, Matthew Nelson of Biodesics, Mark Simon of Terea Partners, and Dr. Scott Tomlins of Strata Oncology. The next IO360 program will take place February 26 through 28, 2020, at the Crown Plaza Times Square Hotel in New York City. I hope you enjoy the podcast. I'm Bob Stein. I'm glad to see you all. And um, the topic is really thinking about how to effectively combine the different modalities in immunotherapy and also the other uh, more classical cancer therapies to get better outcomes for patients. My panel members will introduce themselves going forward, but I thought I'd give a few remarks at the beginning to put it in perspective. So this is really about seeking winning combinations. And the game has gotten pretty rough, but it's worth the candle. And the first wave of successes was pretty uh, rapidly gained, and it led to a view that it was going to be pretty straightforward to uh, now conquer cancer. There has been some very good progress. We just heard from Judy Perkins about how in the cell therapy space, there's some remarkable cures. However, it doesn't seem to be something, even as she mentioned, the other couple patients that have been given a similar regimen haven't had the same good outcomes. And so uh, it really is a lot to still be understood about how to generate better outcomes. There's also been a lot of uh, interesting success with what I like to think of as endovaccination. And that's typified by things like combination chemotherapy and Keytruda, where instead of thinking about the chemotherapy as a way to completely eliminate the tumor, it may be a way to debulk the tumor and liberate immunogens that are significant and then have the immune system consolidate the gains. The next wave of major advances, though, is really pending, and there's been a lot of uh, searching around for effective therapies with a lot of disappointing results, especially in the space of the TNF receptor agonists, um, TNF receptor-like uh, agonists for things like Gitter and Ox40. But the reason that the game is worth the candle is success means cures. It's no longer delaying the time till the disease progresses or till the patient dies from the cancer but actually saving people's lives, and it was very inspiring to hear the story we just uh, listened to. So why is it so challenging? In order to get any of these things to work, you have to have the right target, create the right compound, and do the right trials. And you need to get all three correct in order to have success. And the right combinations are turning out to be very difficult to identify. It has been somewhat like spaghetti against the wall in the sense that people test what they have in their own stable rather than thinking about what makes the most sense to put together and finding ways to get those um, combinations put together from a business standpoint and then tried from a clinical standpoint. But there's an opportunity to make the combination exploration more hypothesis-driven and more based on understanding the detailed pathobiology, what's happening inside the tumor, what's happening between the tumor and the patient's immune system on a patient-by-patient basis. And I believe this is important during the clinical development process, but ultimately it's going to be crucial for getting these new ways of uh, 
curing cancer patients deployed appropriately in, in clinical practice. First wave of interventions are relatively easier to understand because they look at the recapitulation of the natural process of T cell activation. And so it's fairly clear to understand how to combine these agents to get optimal T cell activation and adaptive immune responses. It's also somewhat straightforward to understand T cell exhaustion and see the markers for T cell exhaustion and think about how to combine things like PD-1 blockade with blockade of TIM3 or LAG3. So those things are relatively uh, comprehensible and that's led to more hypothesis-driven combination studies. One of the things that has been disappointing, as I mentioned, is uh, looking at Gitter agonists, Ox40 agonists. Uh, there's a belief that they're going to help deplete regulatory T cells if you make a, a, a FC-competent version of your antibody but then that's dependent upon the tumor being chock full of secondary cells like NK cells or macrophages that can mediate ADCC. The other part of uh, agonists in uh, Gitter, 41B and OX40 is there's a very short temporal window in which these targets are expressed on effector cells after the activation of the T cell receptor. And so what you really want to do is think about using them in settings where you've triggered T cell receptor activation in some kind of synchronous wave so that you can have the uh, antibodies present at the right time to take advantage of that. A lot of them have just been thrown on combinations, but thinking about them in end of vaccination settings where you've triggered cell destruction and have released antigens and have a chance of accelerating the recognition or enhancing the recognition, or in the setting of exogenously administered vaccines or high-dose focal radiation, are things that are likely to lead to more ability to observe. So you really have to think about the timing of when your target's expressed in order to have a good chance of getting the right interventions. The reason that it's more complicated now is that there's a really large number of things that can prevent T cells that you create that have the potential to destroy tumor from actually being able to do that. So there's a variety of uh, interfering cell types like regulatory T cells, myeloid-derived suppressor cells, tumor-associated macrophages, carcinoma-associated fibroblasts, which can secrete things which inhibit the entry of cells into tumors. Um, you may not have sufficient secondary effector cells like NKs or macrophages to mediate ADCC. TGF-beta, hypoxia, uh, adenosine from destroyed cells, IL-10, kynurenin, uh, the upregulation of PDL1, PDL2 on tumor cells, a variety of uh, enzymes that can degrade tryptophan and create kynurenin, arginase. So, those things don't unfold in a characteristic pattern. You really have to understand this patient by patient in order to understand how to intervene. So, the pathobiology varies in this space, and that's why I believe it's essential to get a better grip on what's going on patient by patient. So what do we need to know? And that's part of what these folks are, are here for. Each of them has some opportunity to contribute to understanding how to intervene. We need to understand the molecular characteristics of tumors, and this has been part of molecular oncology for a long time. I also think we need to understand tumor mutational burden, DNA instability, what are the oncogenic drivers, you have uh, MDR, uh, what is the HLA class one um, proteins being expressed on the surface. What are the neoepitopes? What are the non-self characteristics that could allow recognition of the tumor? 
both mutationally based, as Judy talked about, but also one of the exciting things is that there are post-translationally based new epitopes like phosphopeptide-specific uh, proteins that get processed and put out on the surface of malignant cells that can be shared from one patient to another. So thinking about engineering T-cell receptors against shared targets that are still neoepitopes is a very exciting opportunity. But we want to understand whether the tumor's been seen by the adaptive immune system. And if it has, and it's still persisting, then we need to understand why is it uh, not being destroyed. Is, are the uh, cells making it into the tumor? Or are they fresh or are they exhausted? And what roadblocks has the tumor erected to allow it to survive? And then one of the things that I think is extremely important for this area, and I personally have worked a lot in HIV and on Sestiva, for instance, and in HCV as well, we need something that's the analogous uh, measure to uh, viral load. We need something to be able to detect disease at the level where it's no longer clinically significant but still present, and we need to be able to decide whether the regimen that we put the patient on is leading to a likely good outcome that's going to take six months or a year to unfold, and we need to be able to see whether the tumor is coming back before it becomes clinically manifest so we can re-intervene if that's required. So there are you know, the classical biomarkers like Ben Jones proteins or CA125 or PSA, but then there's circulating uh, cell-free DNA, there's circulating tumor cells, there's exosomes, and I think that some of the uh, people on this panel are also uh, able to measure some of those things. So that's really sort of what I'd like to do now is invite the panel members to introduce themselves and say something about what uh, they have that uh, might contribute to this or give any other perspective they'd like in, uh, in the um, introduction. Where do you want to go? <laughs> where? Well, I think we'll go by where the slides are oh, ordered. Okay. <laughs> So uh, this I is Strata. <laughs> I'm uh, Scott Tomlins from Strata Oncology. Um, we're, we're a company that's really focused on um, transforming precision oncology, which we think includes both the more traditional um, DNA-based as well as immuno-oncology, really transforming that from something that is a, a one-off thing that a center may participate in um, to really w what should be the standard of care for all patients, really motivated by the mission that we think every patient deserves to know what's their best treatment option. And I think that's uh, particularly important now with the, the both um, Judy's story, we heard about the profound benefits that patients can have, as well as the challenges of, of how do we get a patient on the right trial. So um, we partner with healthcare systems, not individual physicians or individual uh, uh, groups, but real healthcare networks. Um, we provide no-cost uh, testing to their entire advanced cancer population. Most centers aren't able to handle the logistics of precision medicine in general, just helping them find their entire advanced cancer patient population, um, enable testing for all of those patients through our laboratory, and then we also bring them a, a portfolio of partnered uh, therapeutic trials um, so that we're able to match patients to both standard of care options as well as um, clinical trials. We do this with a clinical molecular database so that we can continue to um, generate insights, track what happens to patients, and really use that as a feed-forward loop to identify the next best set of trials. Um, we, we try to provide, I and mean, this is something else, I, I think, um, I come from an academic medical center, and we think that most physicians want to know everything. They want to know all the options. Um, most physicians spend about 45 seconds telling patients about what their molecular testing results mean. They don't have time to go through 150 results in a, in a busy oncology practice, and they really just want to know what to do. 
And you can imagine that taking all that data and saying what you should do is challenging, but we think that that's something that's actually somewhat solvable. Um, we, we also think that you know every patient on our, on our test, we read out MSI, tumor mutation burden, as well as PDL1 expression. Um, and then I think one of the other things that we really realize is that the, the particularly in this case where, as, as Bob mentioned, that there may be different time points where you want to intervene. You may need to be able to work with um, minimal residual disease type things. But really when patients have a diagnosis of cancer with their tissue, um, you know, the, the being able to work with the tissue that's available, I'm a pathologist by training, so that's generally formalin fixed paraffin embedded tissue, is really critical. Um, so you can see that we have about half of our testing volume that's sent to us smaller than 25 millimeters squared and about 15% is smaller than five millimeters squared. And you really have to be able to work with those tiny things. And so you may not be able to do some, uh, you know, whole exome, whole transcriptome, whole genome it can be really challenging, but you can certainly do what I consider to be a comprehensive profile. That's kind of the minimum that you need to do. Um, our, our test also measures all uh, a range of other IO um, antibody drug conjugate targets as well, the things that aren't genomically encoded. So I don't think right now, if you really want to provide the best treatment options for your patients, you probably can't just be measuring DNA. I think we've really got to, especially in IO, you have to incorporate RNA and, and protein as well to be able to really do that for patients. Um, so I, I think that that's part of the, uh, the thing that we'll have to do going forward is that, you know, we can tell you this is what the expression profile of this target looks like across 10,000 tumors with um, all of the other DNA and RNA biomarkers, and then it's really up to, I, th I think, the people in this room to figure out what's the best way to um, enable clinical trials that test those hypotheses. Thank you. I think we'll probably have questions and comments, but let's go through individuals first, and then we'll come back. Matt. Hi, my name is Matt Nelson. Um, I was asked to join the panel just because I have a, a varied experience. I spent the better part of almost five and a half years at Roche Tissue Diagnostic dealing with IHCs and um, had over 30 partners that were non-Genentech, non-Roche, so all the other pharmas around the world. And um, we were always betting on the horse that we thought was going to win. And over the course of those five years, with all those programs that I worked on, we had two winners. It was ALK, and then it was uh, PDL one right? And to me, we were always looking in the tumor. And, and I thought there was a miss with looking at the immune response from your patient, right? The, the difference between the the tumor environment and the host, right? There's something going on there. So I joined Biodesics uh, a little bit over a year and a half ago, and their approach is to look within the blood, right? So to look within this idea that you can identify these circulating proteins, these immune responses in very little sample and using a multivariate approach. So it's hypothesis to, to the point that it's gonna kill a lot of translational scientists out there hypothesis independent. So, um, and we've been very successful. We actually have two on-market tests that are being used by both pulmonologists and oncologists and they're fully reimbursed. And now we brought that out uh, through our partnering team to all the pharmaceutical companies and we're working both for early stratification, right, that we'd see with your PD-L1s and, and those sort of things, but also looking at um, disease progression and seeing when treatments start failing based on this innate immune response that you're seeing coming from the tumor microenvironment then being kind of amplified by the liver and then going out into circulation. So uh, it's very exciting to me to see this transition because I think we're in the day and age where we're starting to think differently, right? And we heard that from Judy is that a lot of it we just don't know. And so why not try everything and see if we can find an answer? Thank you. 
Hi, I'm Sean Bendel. I'm uh, an assistant professor in uh, pathology at Stanford University, as well as the uh, director of the Immune Oncology uh, Clinical Court of Sciences Center there that's part of the Parker Institute network and the NCI network. Um, one of the things my lab does there is we work on new next generation single cell technologies and one thing in particular uh, that we have been working on the last few years is this thing called multiplex ion beam imaging, maybe. Um, and for that, we've uh, spun out a commercial venture, IonPath, which I'm a co-founder of. And essentially what this technology does, and it's kind of one of the, the things we're, we're more excited about for doing next-gen core of science, is um, it takes your, your IHC-based tissue assays for, for retrospective analyses or prospective analyses with trials, and instead of measuring one feature about a tumor, say CD3 T cells, it lets us measure up to 40, 40 or more features at the same time. And so by doing this, by, by essentially replacing your typical colorimetric-based uh, reporters for elemental-based reporters and a, a next-gen imaging system, what we can do is with a single sample, we can kind of comprehensively both ca capture the heterogeneity and structure of the tumor, as well as the, the heterogeneity or homogeneity and structure of the immune system as well. And, um, you know, the company provides uh, commercial systems and reagents and assays, as well as uh, they partner with different pharma and do uh, internal court of science studies as well with them. And I think, you know, the thing that's gotten me particularly bullish about this tech and what we can do for, for the type of work that I think a lot of people in the room here are interested in is uh, this paper we published uh, late last year in Cell. Uh, we did a retrospective study on uh, triple negative breast cancers from the clinical archive at Stanford. And so again, from uh, a tissue microarray of about 50 patients, what we were able to do is, you know, well, you know, every patient's tumor seemed like it was a little bit of a snowflake. What we were able to do in terms of the immune system and how it was interacting with the tumor is we actually showed that there was a defined rule set in both composition and arrangement of immune cells relative to tumor. And once we identified that rule set, we were able to stratify the patients in a way that we were actually able to figure out patients that were going to have positive responses, albeit a minority in triple negative breast cancer, positive responses to chemotherapy. So it's interesting that even though we were looking at people who went through a therapy that was unrelated to immunotherapy, we were still able to show that how the immune system was interacting with the tumor had some predictive power. Thank you. So of course, neither, neither of you guys or put I anything I showed in. plenty of slides yesterday. Well, sure, I'll go. All right, hi, I'm Jeff. I lead the oncology practice at Defined Health, now Cello Health Bioconsulting. Um, so I guess, Mark, you and I are maybe a little bit of the outsiders here, and particularly we focus mostly on, on therapeutics, so kind of bring that perspective to this panel as well as perhaps a higher strategic level. Um, just want to make a couple points. want to kind of pull the conversation back a little bit and maybe tie it into things that have been talked about over the past three days. One, I think it's what's very clear is that with something like a very heterogeneous uh, entity that is the cancer, and that's not in a snapshot of time, that's also heterogeneous and changing over time, that you need something like the immune system, hence this conference, that is in and of itself well-matched to pursue that, that is plastic and adaptable. All right, so we're setting up this binary opposition here. Another binary opposition I see is right now uh, we, and this is certainly relevant to kind of diagnostics, the idea of uh, should the approaches be holistic? So there are a lot of the approaches we're hearing here where you're pulling in, multiplexing lots of different analytes versus kind of 
many of our original tests, not just in I.O., but in oncology, which are more reductionist, right? We have a single analyte, it's ALK mutation, EGFR mutation, it's PDL expression, it's something else. So that's my second uh, binary. And the third is an interesting trend we're seeing is um, between the idea of, say, extensively engineering something, so trying to recapitulate uh, or in some way uh, mirror what might be able to be going on within the immune system. So highly engineering of adoptive cell therapies, uh, highly engineering of increasingly um, you know, uh, off-the-shelf biologics, et cetera, putting all sorts of neat tricks into those. That's one trend. The other side, of course, is to rely more on the immune system itself to do this work for you on the assumption that nature will always be smarter than we are. So whether it's the in-situ vaccination that, um, that Bob alluded to before that you see when you give some of these agents, whether it's types of approaches like a, a broadly acting till where you're not predefining what either tumor-specific or neoantigens you may be going after, uh, some of the interesting polyclonal T-cell approaches that other companies like Velicum or others have. So that's my third kind of interesting binary, and I think, you know, all of those kind of themes are important to bear in mind, uh, both in this discussion, but when thinking about how best to position your drug or your approach within the constantly evolving, maturing, getting better and better, but still have a long way to go, uh, oncology marketplace. And, and I don't want to emphasize the marketplace. Obviously, at the end of the day, it's all about patients such as Judy and others who are there at the front lines, and all of us have been touched by it and will be touched by it. So, Mark. Thank you. Uh, I'm Mark Simon. I'm a co-founder of Terea Partners. We help uh, small companies find homes for their early stage assets with big pharma, large biotech companies. I actually wanted to just give an anecdote about what I would call the maturity of the system for an early stage asset. Uh, my firm represented a very small company called Kineta. This is a company in Seattle. Um, they've never taken any VC money. If you look at the board, most people would not recognize anybody. Um, almost all the money came from grants, um, a couple of high net worth individuals in Seattle. Um, and the company was very good in the chemistry area. Um, so just to give a, a, a quick uh, analysis of what they did that actually illustrates things could work. Despite not having the VC board and all of the credentialed um, experts, um, they, in the pain area, uh, they started out and they went to some of the big pharmas in the pain area and they said, what models, how should we be testing this novel target? Um, so they got the feedback and then they conducted those experiments the experiments generally worked, but again, this is all preclinical. They came to us, we ran a process, and Genentech and Roche ended up becoming the partner. Their second program was IO RIGI. Um, they came to us as well, very early stage, um, a different construct than the Merck Rigontech. Um, they were looking at oral, and again, they went out to some big pharma companies, some labs. Um, they were told, here are some interesting experiments to run. They ran those experiments. We then looked at that data. We were pleased. Uh, we thought they had enough of a threshold. We then went back out to the 25 or 30 um, who could be a good partner. Um, we then got some information how we should combine our rig eye agonist with a checkpoint. Should it be intratumoral? What kind of model should we do? Of course, everyone had a different view, but we generally found um, two or three that looked pretty interesting. Um, we did those. Um, 
Again, we thought the data was suggestive. You can't say an early stage model is conclusive because we all know the, the perils of predicting preclinical to clinical. Um, we then went out and we ended up having four or five term sheets. And what was interesting was um, because it was so early stage, um, it was clear that we were going to hand this off to a, a larger player who could ultimately pursue a number of oral molecules, maybe intratumoral. So we had asked each of the companies that were really interested, let's say it's four or five, for a research plan. So they presented the research plan to us, and there wasn't perfect homology, um, but from the research plan, it became very clear to them um, who they thought would be a good sticky partner. And at the end of the year, um, they concluded an alliance with Pfizer, and um, they're now off and running. But what it just illustrates is that if you can learn from what's out there, and the other good news is that I think most of the pharma companies, I think most of the companies with either a PD-1 or a PDL one I think there's been a maturity, and they now have their checkboxes in a good way. In other words, they can say, this is the models that we look at. This is some of the data that we need to see for potential synergy. Because three years ago, all we heard was everything synergizes with PD-1. You know, chemotherapy, every, far, every biotech would come into us no matter what they had, whether it was epigenetics or cancer metabolism, and they found a model that synergized. So on the good news front, I think there has been a maturity. While there's still some irrational deals, this does show, I think, that if you, you know, do the good science, you're a good listener, you ultimately can find the right outside vendors to conduct a good experiment, um, there actually are rewards there. And it was much more spasmodic and crazy. Um, now, in interestingly, on a post-mortem, you know, if we had done a deal with Celgene right now, and we announced that in December, um, and obviously three weeks later, we would have seen the, the cell, you know, the Bristol-Myers Celgene that would have been disruptive. But that was the other thing about them was they felt that Pfizer was an aircraft carrier, and it was unlikely to be a change of control. Thank you. So. I also took a four-year detour in life and became board certified in anatomic and clinical pathology. So we have four pathologists. I don't know what the venereal term for that is. Maybe it's a section of pharmacopathologists. <laughs> and Mark and Jeff are here because they really have seen you know, the field more broadly. Um, Jeff's been thinking about how all the things integrate a lot. And Mark has really been thinking about how to put together the combinations from a business standpoint that allow us to capture some of this. But as a pathologist, one of the things that has bothered me a lot thinking about how to get the right tools in place is sampling problems. You know, you get an initial formalin-fixed paraffin-embedded piece of tissue that represented a snapshot of what was going on in that patient at the start of therapy. It'd be nice to be able to get repeat biopsies, but you know, needle biopsies or core biopsies are very, very small samples of a larger process and also not much fun for patients and difficult for deeper lesions. And it would be nice if there are things that we can measure in the peripheral blood, but understanding how what you measure in the peripheral blood relates to what's going on in the tumor is a major challenge. So I think that that's something that, uh, you know, has the tumor been seen by the immune system? You can try to understand that by looking in the peripheral blood, and there's great tools now to not only determine whether cells react to tumor antigens, to predict what those antigens might be, and to even pull out 
T-cell receptors as alpha-beta pairs from individual cells to think about using to weaponize living drugs, et cetera. So there's a whole range of new opportunities, but if you don't find them in the periphery, does that mean they don't exist or that they've already gone to the tumor? And so there's a real need to be able to develop sampling and analysis tools that will be informative in that regard. And I also think that lots of these things where you measure bulk properties of tumor, like RNA signatures, to see whether there's a TGF-beta influence or maybe an adenosine or hypoxia influence, are interesting, or cyber-sort techniques where you try to understand from looking at transcriptional fingerprints what cell types might be present are informative, but you also have to understand their spatial arrangement. So I'm interested in um, how all those things can be assembled in a way that allows the advantageous focus on the smaller studies that would test hypotheses. I recognize that there's a value in, in looking at the data without being blinded by a particular way of looking at it. But from that should emerge some hypotheses that then you can test. And um, I wonder, what do people think about this, the sampling problems and uh, what you miss and what we can do about it? Well, I'm, I'm happy to jump in, at least from the diagnostic company point of view. And I think you, the, the sample problem, especially within lung cancer, for example, is a real issue, right? Um, it's not so much that, is that when you think about the patient journey, you're always going to go in the path of the tissue, right? You're going to... It's going to go to the pathologists are going to say thumbs up, thumbs down cancer, and then you're going to go off for other biomarkers. And those biomarkers take probably seen somewhere between five, maybe seven, 12 days to report back to the oncologist that then has a meeting with the patient. Um, for me, that might be too long of a time for a patient that's in need of getting answers. So having more of a rapid 72-hour, 48-hour turnaround time so you can have, whether it's genetic mutations that you can talk to, is probably one of the more key decision-making because the patient's going to say, just get me on the treatment, or the, the oncologist is going to put them on Keytruda or Optiva or whatever right away, and they're never going to pull them off when they have the genetic information, right? Uh, so uh, in terms of the multivariate approach, I think what we do then is the correlative science to understand the pathways, the complement, um, acute phase, and, and really starting to boil back down to what is the underlying biology. So while you start off with this independence, you always have to get down to the biological rationale. So I completely agree with that. Yeah, I, I think a lot of it really depends on sort of where you're positioning your program and at what stage you are in that from discovery to hypothesis to testing on large numbers of patients. And I, I think that really dictates the approach and the you know, how valuable is it to try to get a biopsy on this patient pre-treatment and post-treatment, which really eliminates the vast majority of the centers that can do that trial. And that, that can be, you know, it, it's done well at highly specialized academic medical centers. That costs, that biopsy process costs more than the diagnostic tests that aren't reimbursed well. So I, I really think it depends on sort of where you are in that process and, and in terms of positioning your agent. But I think you know, and it also depends on um, if you look at expression from a heterogeneous biomarker, PDL1 does fairly well at predicting response in an overall population. And fairly well. Fa uh, fairly well, but, you know, I mean, in, in some cancers and gastroesophageal, it's, you're predicting about a 10 to 15 percent response rate. So you're right. selecting for populations, and I think you can use bulk biomarkers as well to select for populations where you're enriching the phenotype that you're looking for.
And I think the other thing, if it comes down to you have to know what's going on in a single cell in a diagnostic setting to get something like that through the FDA is going to be particularly challenging to demonstrate. How do you assess heterogeneity and, and things like that. So I think there's a lot of, you know, a lot of these have been challenging to do even from bulk sequencing, getting people to reimburse and pay for that. So I think trying to do that in a um, e even more smaller, smaller uh, window is just uh, something that's more challenging and it's hard to deploy that widely across a, a, a network. Yeah, so I think I like to think about it as what suite of tools would we build ideally if we were going to best serve patients long term, which means best figure out how to treat them in the development of these compounds so they get registered and deployed. And then if there are impediments to being able to do that, figure out how to knock down those impediments to, uh, to get that suite of uh, approaches built. It's a little bit like you know, the workup of lymphomas and leukemias where the use of surface markers had to be built and the underlying analysis of what was going on in patients had to be built in order to optimize the treatment of that subset of cancer patients. And everybody does want one analyte you can measure. You know, it's like LDL cholesterol, which <laughs> followed on the uh, Friedrichsen's different types of hyperlipidemia and lots of detailed characterization, which eventually could be supplanted. But you can get fooled, like pdl one high can indicate, I've seen gamma interferon, but it can indicate other things, like I've got MAP kinase activation. And so, you know, looking at conjoint expression in the tumor of PDL1 and PDL2 and maybe IDO1 or a gamma interferon signature may be more informative than one analyte. It may allow you to eventually pick one analyte to measure. But I don't think we're ready to jump to those single analytes yet. And um, Sean, you, you had some uh, thoughts about the spatial distribution of these different components in the tumor that makes the IHC component important. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I mean, in 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 kind of the the proof of concept stuff that we published already, we we showed that tumors with identical immune composition had different immune responses. It was actually, the interesting part is that the kind of two things we saw that seemed to be really strongly associated with expression at a checkpoint is we saw tumors that were finely intermingled. So you've had CD8 T cells mixed in there side by side with tumor cells. These, are, these, are, these were the tumors that surprisingly actually did poorly with chemotherapy. And it was actually the tumors that were more compartmentalized, where the tumor was cordoned off from the immune system, the ones that did very well. And in that case, you had checkpoint actually being expressed on the immune system itself. And the immune system's own cells were kind of holding the T cells back. Um, just kind of your, your point, I just want to talk about that, the sampling thing too, because I spend a lot of time in meetings talking about setting up these types of trials. It's really hard to get extra samples outside of standard of care, even at a comprehensive cancer center. So when you're thinking about putting these technologies together and what we're going to be able to get on most patients, you really have to think about what are the samples you can normally get access to all the time, which is typically diagnostic bi biopsies and surgical resections. I think the dream, like you said, Bob, is to go towards something we can see in the periphery because getting blood from people is not... Most people don't mind giving an extra tube of blood, but usually that's kind of once they're on treatment and coming into the clinic. So I, I really think, and again, that's why I'm kind of biased against the IHC-based technologies, being able to deal with small biopsies or a piece of surgical resection and be able to come up with kind of pre-treatment predictors, I think is going to be really important for setting this stuff up. And I just want to add a therapeutic perspective to sampling because biopsy is 
critical and limiting and potentially confounding, say, from the standpoint of, oh, we are a neoantigen company, we need to sample that tumor uh, when we need to use our predictive algorithms, which is then another level of uh, roadblock, if you will. So even in those approaches, aside from just diagnostics, being able to make sure you've got enough of the tumor, uh, and, and even then you're probably only reflecting a small spatial component and you're not necessarily representing, if you're going to the primary, what's going on in a metastatic site, et cetera. So. I would even add to that, you know, having dealt with pharmaceutical companies going into a phase 1B study, they're trying to discover a biomarker on the, on the sample that typically could be 5, 10 years old, multiple lines of treatment before, and they're saying, that's my winning horse. So <laughs> it's really hard to, to think you could pick that. And, and to your point, dealing with blood, you have it pre-treatment, and then you have it as you go along. So you can do your longitudinal analysis. You can really get an idea of what the biology is today, the immune response is today. Yeah. Although if you look at Gartent, they'll say that about up to a third of the blood collected, they can't extract any circulating tumor DNA or it's just indecipherable. Um, when they do it, they do keep one vial uh, to go back in the future. Their challenge has been the whole reimbursement side. And the earlier you use it, the more skeptical United Healthcare is. And while doctors are embracing it, I was on a panel with a managed care person, and they said the data, yes, for monitoring certain niches, the data is there. But generally speaking, it's not there. So as usual, the science is racing ahead of the, the fundamentals. So just a few thoughts. We're sort of out of time. I don't know if there's any opportunity for questions from the audience. But let me just mention. so. One of the things that biodesics can do is measure 400 protein analytes in a little drop of dried blood. And it's interesting because it may be these secondary responses to the presence of tumor that are more readily measurable and are shared across more patients. And so that's something we shouldn't forget. And then the other uh, thought that I have is that we had a discussion in the hall before this about what pricing are people going to tolerate for uh, treating cancer patients. And I believe that that's highly related to how effective your treatment is. And if we can learn to get the right patients on the right regimens, then the amount of money you spend to cure people will be worth it. It's like if you have one person in 10 respond to an expensive regimen, it's not worth it. But if eight people out of 10 respond, then it's worth it from a, not only a human uh, standpoint, but from a biomedical economic standpoint and from a society standpoint. So I think. Although there's challenges to getting all this put together, I think it's imperative that we figure out how to do it and then how to simplify it once we figure out the underlying um, concepts. Jim has the sheep's crop. We're done. We're done. Right. We're done. Thank Thanks. Thanks. Thanks, everyone. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. The 2020 IO360 program will take place February 26th through 28th at the Crown Plaza Times Square Hotel in New York City. For more information, visit theconferenceforum.org. Thanks for listening.